0: Hello, and welcome to the Cambridge Elements podcast. Cambridge Elements are one of the latest concepts in academic publishing from Cambridge University Press, a short form hybrid designed to offer the best features of books and journals. In this podcast, authors will discuss the subject of their element in more depth, sharing their expertise on a variety of topics, from public policy to race to climate and politics. There is something for everyone to enjoy. We are delighted to introduce Professor Cass Sunstein as our first guest in conversation with Tony Hockley from the London School of Economics to explore some of the key themes in his element. Cass has had an extensive career advising officials and students on behavioural science and public policy, including lecturing at Harvard University, advising the White House during Obama's presidency and in 2020 he was appointed by the World Health Organisation as the chair of its advisory group on behavioural insights and science for health. Here, Cass discusses his new element, behavioural science and public policy.
1: So, Cass Sunstein, I'm delighted to, to do, do this with you, uh, to talk about the new book. Um, first, firstly, the new book is a, a, a bit of a venture because it's an addition to the choice set for academic authors, that uh, it's not a journal article and it's not a full-size book. It's in between and, and it's digital. I mean, is, that, is that something that you welcome and you think will be beneficial?
2: I do. I think it's a fantastic innovation. So uh, journal articles are often highly specialized and they're often, you know, relatively short and books are often lengthy and, uh, a real-time commitment for people. And what Cambridge has innovated is something where it's fuller than a journal article, but it's subject, as I well know, to peer review by which specialists really run you through the gamut of concerns and make a lot of uh, very helpful suggestions. So it has those advantages, um, but it's fuller than an article, uh, more comprehensive, and directed not solely at an academic audience. The hope is that with ideas that have you know, general relevance to people's lives and sometimes to policy, uh, you can reach through this vehicle a lot more people than a journal article would.
1: Yeah, and that, and that struck me read, reading the text is that uh, it, it has that credibility of an academic uh, article but I mean, it's clearly addressed to quite a broad policy audience. And so I mean, in, in behavioral science and public policy, you, you talk about the behavioral revolution and it's, it's more than a decade on, on from Nudge now. And I wonder if you know, this is the ultimate test that we're going through of that revolution, that it's, it's, it's met its moment. I knew, do, do you think it's passing that test?
2: Well, I think you're completely right that it's met its moment. And before COVID-19, of course, we've seen a flowering of work in behavioral science, whether the question involves road safety or the question involves maternal health or the question involves uh, HIV AIDS or the question involves jobs or educational opportunity. There was in 2017 and 2018 BC, as we call it, before Corona, there was uh, a spectacular outpouring of behavioral science with a lot of creativity from practitioners as well as from ac- academics. But right now it's as if, you know, uh, there's a crucible where behavioral science is really being put to its metal and trying to save lives. And uh, there's no question that all over the world, I'm working with the World Health Organization uh, basically every day, uh, behavioral science is being Uh, enlisted. Uh, In some places, it's been helpful or better than that. So in New Zealand, a place where Uh, the pandemic has been, as of this, uh, discussion halted, uh, behavioral strategies have been used to great effect, uh, in places in Europe that have had more success than others, uh, behaviorally informed policies have been enlisted. Uh, the United States has been particularly challenged in many ways, but, uh, where I'm speaking from right now, Massachusetts, we're doing relatively well, and many of the policies, uh, have used behavioral science.
1: Yeah, I, I, I wonder, it comes through in the book that uh, you know, there's, there's clearly you're trying to address some of the concerns about mission creep of nudge, as if nudge is behavioral policy in its in entirety. And a lot of the criticism that we've seen of behavioral science in this is essentially along the lines that a nudge isn't enough. You know, gosh, governments are just trying to nudge people to do the right thing. When this is a serious crisis. And and that that comes through quite generally in the book, is that sort of confusion that's developed over a decade, uh, that all we're talking about is a gentle nudge.
2: Yes. So the beauty of behavioral science really is that it tells you something about the human species. So we know that human beings are often... Uh, focused on today and tomorrow, that's present bias, rather than the long term. We know that human beings have limited attention. We can focus on only a subset of the things that are actually on our view screen. We know that human beings show a tendency to unrealistic optimism, and whether these things invite nudges or taxes or mandates or bans, Depends on the circumstances. So it is true that sometimes nudges have achieved a great deal. Uh, if you switch from opt-in design for, let's say, free meals for kids to opt-out design, you can have a very significant impact on how many kids are enjoying free school meals. That that's not a small effect. But for some problems, let's call it um, uh, highway safety, or let's call it uh, smoking. Uh, the idea that you can solve the problem with nudges is too optimistic. We need an assortment of tools. And some of the tools that aren't nudges, like cigarette taxes, let's say, or taxes on sugar sweetened beverages, those are behaviorally informed. That is, they're a response to a, a behavioral problem, which might be addiction, which might be unrealistic optimism, which might be uh, present bias.
1: Yeah, I don't. One of the things that really interests me is the, the idea of a toolkit and that these things are complementary. Um, I'm particularly interested in the incremental process of change. And I do, one of the examples you give is about mandating federal employees not to text while they're driving in order to establish that social norm. So you use a mandate to then use a behavioural insight uh, to, to spread policy. They're, they're complementary.
2: Completely. So this is something I was involved in in the White House, where there was uh, intense interest in reducing deaths and injuries on the highways. And this is something which is uh, a policy, but this is also an assortment of human tragedies, which are avoidable. And one thing that our Department of Transportation, like any Ministry of Transport, will tell you Is that distracted driving is a contributor to the problem? So what are you going to do about that? What President Obama did was basically to forbid his own employees from texting while driving. That was his policy. And there's a fair enforcement question. What's he going to do if the Secretary of State texts while driving? Is he going to fire her? Probably not. But the idea was to establish a principle and a norm uh, would be valuable not only for people who work for the government, but also all over the country and potentially even the world. And to my astonishment, that happened, that after the president said his own employees couldn't text while driving, Secretary General of the United Nations, in a very public ceremony in which the U.S. Ambassador of the United Nations and the Russian Ambassador of the United Nations stood side by side, they said, we are for this, and this is going to be part of a an effort to promote road safety in our respective nations. And then there were other places that did things that were follow-on policies that reflected a belief in the in the norm which you shouldn't text while driving. That's dangerous. And while this is a work in progress for many countries, including certainly my own, uh, every life you save is uh, a great thing to have done. and if you save, you know, In a year, 300 lives, that's pretty modest compared to the number that die. But that's 300 people who are with us who wouldn't otherwise be with us.
1: Do you think it's fair, though, that some, uh, you know, if you resort to bans or at the other extreme, if you resort to a very light touch intervention, there's no educational component? So we may stop people texting while they're driving, uh, but they may be doing something else on their playing games on their phones or or navigating with their phones while they're driving because they haven't bought into the bigger idea?
2: It's a great question. And uh, one of the goals of uh, the little book or element, as we might call it, is to uh, explore the fact that we're really at early stages and we have a ton to learn about some of this stuff. So we know much more than five years ago, but much less than five years from now. Uh, It's probably useful to distinguish between educative interventions, some of which are behaviorally informed and non-educative interventions. So you could have an educative intervention where you're trying to inform people, let's say, about uh, the nutritional content of food or the calories associated with their meals. That would be an effort to protect people's own agency by giving them information they'd otherwise lack or tell them things about energy efficiency or fuel economy so they can make informed choices about what refrigerators and automobiles to buy. Uh, Those are nudges, some of them, and they are designed to make people better able to figure out what to do. Then there are things that are more architectural like uh, a prohibition or a tax on certain projects or a uh, requirement that you have to do something. And those things may have an educational component if there's an informational signal in them. But I think you're quite right that if people are automatically enrolled in, let's say a savings plan or in green energy, they're unlikely to be learning a whole lot. And there might be spillover behavior that's good, that they're automatically rolling green energy and then they're going to do other green stuff. Or there might be compensating behavior, which is not so good, where they are, let's say, mandated something with respect to food when they go to work. And then in the afternoon, boy, are they going to get uh, fudge bars and and chocolate. Are you
1: less likely to get that compensatory behavior if nudges are transparent? Because I noticed you say there should be some sort of a virtual bill of rights for for nudging, that they should always be transparent. Is that part of that, trying to get people to buy into purpose as well as do what's right?
2: Completely. So if people are nudged, let's say with uh, a reminder that you have a doctor's appointment on Wednesday and probably should go. That is educative. Uh, If it's the case that people are being nudged through something that doesn't teach them anything, it may be that you'll see compensating behavior. And uh, if it's transparent that they're being nudged, let's say they're automatically enrolled in a savings program to have great clarity about that is kind of what you want in a democratic or even non democratic society, because it shows respect for people and it will have it's to be hoped an educational component so that people know, Oh, I'm automatically enrolled in a savings plan. Um, That might be a really good idea for me, given my economic situation. Or people might say I'm automatically enrolled in a savings plan. I need the money now. I'm kind of struggling here. And and that's good to allow people to opt out generally, and transparency helps them. So I love your point about the need for a Bill of Rights for nudging. Many people have rightly been concerned that either private or public institutions might nudge people either in a way that's in their own self-interest, that is the nudger's self-interest rather than the nudgees self-interest. Or people might nudge in a way that's not selfish, but that's kind of clueless. And you don't really know enough about the relevant population and what they really need. And if you're transparent about what you're doing, then the people who are being nudged can say, to heck with you. You don't know what you're doing. My situation's different. And that's, uh, you know, that's part of uh, freedom. and many behaviorally informed policies uh, have respect for freedom as kind of the first component of the Bill of Rights.
1: Yeah, and There is a lot of humility that comes through in this book, I thought, reading the text. And that seems absent from a lot of the behavioral debate that we've over the past few months, that there's so much certainty in the world about one solution or another. I really love the, uh, the concept of welfare forecasting, As you know, an English person is uh, fascinated by the weather, and it's one of those things that's really scientific, um, but is also subject to forces that uh, we don't expect. So that really resonated with me, welfare forecasting.
2: Yeah, so there's a fantastic stream of behaviorally informed research, which is funny as well as profound, I think, showing that people often predict the welfare effects of something in their own lives, and they don't get it right. So people predict that if they're denied tenure, boy, are they going to be miserable for a long time. It's just not so. People who are denied tenure in a, after a certain time has passed, they're completely fine. Uh, people predict things about the consequence of you know, a meal or a, a product choice, which often uh, underplays people's capacity to adjust and often underplays the fact that we pay attention to a ton of things in our lives. So So if one thing goes sour, if one thing goes great, so long as the rest of life, in the case of something going sour, is good, we're basically going to be fine. And so long as the rest of life kind of isn't so good, even if we have a great, really fantastic car, we're not going to be all that happy. So to to think that our attention is going to be on lots of things rather than the particular thing is often instructive about how we might exaggerate the impact of one change in how our life's going to go.
1: Yeah. And would you apply that to the policymakers as well as to our target uh, that we have the same welfare welfare forecasting issues uh, that we do as individuals?
2: I think so. So I worked for four years as a policymaker in the White House, and I guess I have a, a occasional policymaking role now, particularly working with the World Health Organization. And in in the White House, I do think sometimes we um, focused on an aspect of an intervention in a way that wasn't as comprehensive as it should have been. And I'll I'll just give you an example. So we mandated calorie labels for chain restaurants. And I think that's a good policy. It's a good nudge. But we didn't focus very much on the fact that some people will see the calorie label and not change their behavior, but just be sad. (laughs) So the welfare effect of the calorie label will be for a certain population negative that they'll see, oh gosh, the meal that I really love has a ton of calories. I'm going to go for it, but I'm not going to enjoy it very much. And that's, that's relevant to assessing whether it's a good policy. And it might be suggestive about how to make the policy better so that it doesn't have the negative effect. And then you kind of invite reform.
1: I, I suppose in a similar vein, the COVID pandemic is the test of that sort of silo approach to policy. I mean, policymakers, behavioral teams are so focused on the pandemic, but there, there is so much else. in in human welfare at this time. Um, And it's very hard to strike the balance between making people fearful of a risk uh, and maintaining that that worldview, because in policy, that's that's what you're, you're judged on.
2: Yes, and for some of the behavioral teams all over the world and some of the policymakers who are informed by the behavioral teams or in some way behavioral science, uh, it's a platitude to say a balance has to be struck, but you're getting at something that isn't a platitude, which is that if the response to the pandemic is to make people really scared, that might be effective in getting them to take precautions. But if people are really scared, then their days are going to be pretty bad. And to be alive and scared is better than to be Dead, but to be and to, I had COVID nineteen. It was really bad. I didn't get really deeply sick, but to be really sick and scared is better than being, you know, hospitalized, as I fortunately wasn't. But if you can do things as have been has been done in some countries, New Zealand in particular, where the precautions are uh, called for with a sense of hope and humor then people's experience of their days won't be cowering, but instead will be positive and optimistic. So in New Zealand, uh, the prime minister said such things as, you know, we're gonna have a lot of uh, constraint. But the Easter Bunny is not going to be subject to the constraint, and neither is the Tooth Fairy. They can be as mobile as they like. And that's, it's not the funniest joke in the history of comedy, but it did have a kind of wit and uh, a smile in it. And that was contagious. So my understanding in New Zealand is that there was a sense of kind of upbeat determination, that accompanied precautionary steps, rather than punishment and terror. And that's that's a lesson for all countries, I think.
1: And would you say that came from behavioral insights, or it was a natural instinct in the New Zealand?
2: It's a great question. And I, I don't know the genesis in sufficient detail. I would say that behavioral insights are built into the DNA of the government there. And there are practitioners of behavioral insights who are superb in New Zealand. It's a very active uh, area there. And whether they particularly informed the prime minister or whether she had an intuition about uh, our species or whether she has general understanding of behavioral principles, my guess is yes, she does. In, In any case, it's fair to call it a behaviorally informed strategy to, uh, accompany strictures with a sense of a shared endeavor for which things are going to work out.
1: I suppose it comes back to the earlier point about humility is, is very important in this, that they did to yeah. avoid that, that yeah. fear of paternalism.
2: Completely. And I might say that uh, in many governments that are usually using behaviorally informed policy, the strategy is not to slap on the policy. Uh, So people see, see, oh, now we have this policy. But instead to provide some method for consultation and learning, from relevant people. And this can be a public comment process, as many countries have, where before you have, let's say, an automatic enrollment policy or before you have um, a particular type of label accompanying a product, you give people a 90 day period to comment, and you can get experts and ordinary people saying, This is a great idea, this is a dumb idea, this is uh, not as good as an idea that you could build if you gave it another two more months and here's the direction you should go that can be super helpful and if things have a degree of urgency and time pressure as many of the COVID 19 policies do then it wouldn't be a formal consultation of that kind it would be informal and to have an opportunity to talk to people in relevant communities and to meet meet them where they, where they are that, in a way, I think, is the uh, behavioral economics mantra that isn't. It's implicit in some of the work, but the idea of meeting people where they are is, um, I think, a work in progress for behavioral science and public policy, and it's uh, kind of God's work.
1: There's a fascinating discussion, I thought, in this, this, this elements piece, uh, developing and. My colleague Julian Legrand and Bill News work on ends and means-related paternalism, uh, and you, you say that I uh, mean means-related nudges are the sort of coin of the realm of behavioural insights because you're not interfering with people's life goals, um, but helping them with the means to achieve them. But the discussion I thought was uh, was brilliant in in it's not quite as clear-cut as that, discerning what is an end and what is a, a means to that end is a a little more challenging than maybe some of us previously assumed.
2: Yes, this is something with which I've struggled now for a long time. So uh, it's probably right to say as the people you point to have argued in a brilliant book that uh, behavioral is generally means paternalism, not ends paternalism. So it's a little like a GPS device where you get to say where your destination is and the behavioral strategy helps you get there. You can think of a calorie label as something like that or a reminder or a warning that this product contains peanuts, then if you're allergic to peanuts, probably don't eat it. If you're not, go for it. That's all this all means paternalistic. But uh, it's, it's a little more complicated, as you say, because what you describe as a means and what described you describe it as, as an ends can't be read off of a situation. So let's suppose someone is doing a lot of skydiving uh, and then you want them not to because given their situation, that's not a good thing for them to do because they might die, let's suppose. Um, If you uh, nudge them not to engage in skydiving, is that means paternalism because one of their major goals is to have a good life, which includes staying alive? and then the nudge is justified. It just means paternalistic. Or suppose their response to you is, no, my end is skydiving. Or my end is to have a mixture of uh, enjoyment and thrill and longevity. And I'm choosing the right mix. So it's not always clear what's an end and what's a means. And if we describe an an end at a high level of abstraction, like having a good life, then everything is means paternalistic. And there's a kind of license to do stuff to people that overrides what they might say, you know, hey, Buster, that's my end. My end is enjoying my meals or my end is having fun, I think. This this life is not a rehearsal. This is it.
1: Yeah, but I, 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 it was really thought-provoking uh, segment of the element in, in that. Um, I'd I'd like to ask uh, a simple question to finish off, Kef. Um You you say that default rules are the gold should get the gold medal for behaviorally informed policy. Um, is there a silver medal on offer? What I would receive so. it?
2: I think information gets the silver medal. And uh, the reason it doesn't get the gold is that information isn't as effective as a behavior change strategy as just switching the default. But in so many contexts, notwithstanding, uh, the cool kids are very ambivalent about information as a nudge, meaning the cool kids in the behavioral science world. The the generation that's going to get the Nobel in 10 or 20 years, they are skeptical of uh, information as a nudge. I uh, dissent respectfully from the cool kids uh, on this one, that if you are driving in an area where uh, there are Safety risks, information can be spectacularly helpful. If you're buying a medicine, let's say, that has some side effects that could particularly hammer you, information is super helpful. In the ancient days where we used to go to airports, there are nudges all over the place that have a bunch of desirable goals associated with them. For COVID 19, information is in many places an extremely effective nudge. So the uh, silver medal to Hussein gold, who usually gets the gold, uh, goes to information disclosure.
1: Great answer in support of information. It's number two. Thank you very much, guests I really appreciate the time. Thank you.
2: thank you. Great to talk. Really, thank you.